Hello and welcome to the Morbid Museum. We are your hosts, Katie Mead and Luke Boyd. So happy to be back again with you folks. Luke, what do you got on deck for us today? Today's discussion in our uh, informally entitled Bodies, Bodies and Oddities series <laughs> is the unfortunate tale of Phineas Gage. This is, this is a rough story. <laughs> which is familiar to anyone who has studied Psychology 101. Um, yes, that's true. college or high school basic psychology. This is the tale of a gentleman who improbably survived a traumatic brain injury. One that is very grisly, morbid, difficult to talk about, and has become a watershed case in psychology and our understanding of the mind and how our body sort of recovers from these sorts of incidents. It's wild. Wild and crazy stuff. So stuff, yeah. in 1848, um, <laughs> there was- What? This is in the 1840s? Crazy. <laughs> Magic. Um, this is the tale of another Phineas, as opposed to Phineas Taylor Barnum, right. Phineas Gage, many connections. So there was an unfortunate blasting incident um, mm. while working on a local uh, railroad in Vermont. And so in this explosion, Gage's skull was impaled by a tamping iron. <sighs> Which is, again, if when we talk about this more, it's amazing that we're talking about this person who survived this incident. So Gage sustains a major event to his left frontal lobe in the front of his skull. What exactly is, um, what did you call it, a tamping? A tamping iron. What's a tamping yes. iron? So a tamping iron is a device that is used to load gunpowder into a hole. <gasps> Oh, yes. that's right. It's one of the, oh my God. Yeah, it's real bad. So know, because I knew we were doing this, I didn't look up pictures again. I haven't looked okay. at anything on him in a long time. And that just like flew everything right back into my it head. It just flew right through your head. So Same way as it did to him. Yes, exactly. <laughs> so in this horrible accident, uh, Gage's left frontal lobe is severely damaged but he miraculously survives and this is due in no small part to the this, uh, the the details of the accident in terms of his positioning but also mm. who treated him which is really cool and it's long been held that this incident even though he survives the accident it impacts his personality in a really negative way yeah um that he's different that he's sort of antisocial even a psychopath so there's all sorts of different stories associated with Gage in terms of how he was transformed by the event. And it's been debated um, ever since, uh, over 160 years later. So the impact of Gage's psychology and mental state have been a focus of study and discussion for a long, long time. It could, it could be known as the tamping iron incident, but unfortunately for many years, it was known as the American crowbar case. <laughs> What has a fun ring to it? <laughs> yeah, I think one of the doctors just kind of ran with the crowbar case. And if we know anything about a crowbar, it is a bent object. It's nothing like what you just described. Yeah. A tamping iron is a smooth um, rod. So yeah. a, a crowbar would not be something one could walk away from, I don't think. I don't think so. Whereas no. the tamping iron was sort of like, as they say, as one of the doctors described, a rude missile that went through his brain. <sighs> So there's a lot of 
goriness here, but what's really important is that Gage's story influences the discussion of functional specialization, the idea that different parts of the brain have different functions and different roles in our psychology, our mental uh, state, and our ability to have different kinds of functioning. Oh, and Luke, this is so good on top of the anatomy theater last week, because mm. like last week, we didn't even know what a brain looked like. <laughs> We're just right. starting to open people's bodies up. Now look at us. And this is We're a rare psychology. This is a rare glimpse inside the mind of a living person. Yeah. In that we all not only see their mind altered, we saw Phineas Gage's brain in when he was alive. So <laughs> really terrifying i kept thinking about hannibal um oh my god <laughs> so many like there's so many movies that were made in a certain period of time that just like they all loved the cut off head like like yeah. the skull the skull cap like kill bill hannibal mm -hmm. like there are a bunch of movies where it's like we're just gonna do that thing where we have that special effect where we pretend we, we just remove the top of their skull and yeah because you can still live if your brain's just hanging out <laughs> it's true the nerve endings allow you to uh just go on like normal oh, um, yeah. <laughs> So what we hope to unpack in this episode is a little bit of the mythology around the Phineas Gage story. So, and I myself, you know, uh, can attest to this, like it's a story that is often told and retold in, I took psychology in high school. I took it in uh, college. Shout out to uh, Miss Montagnan, my psychology teacher who listens to this podcast. Adorable. Hi. <laughs> yes. Hi, Melody. So, <laughs> and we coalesced around this story. It was such a, it was such an amazing talking point. Um, but in the uh, retellings of the story in popular culture, there's a lot of different ideas about what happened to Gage. So let's rewind to his life story. I know picture nothing. It. I'm so excited. Yes. So picture it, Vermont, 1823. <laughs> I'm there. Phineas Gage is born in Grafton, New Hampshire. Not much is known about his early life. Not, is anything known about that part of New Hampshire? <laughs> no, no. It's very that. remote. So. Yeah. Um, there's an interesting doctor in this case who is really integral to understanding what happened to Phineas Gage, and that is Dr. John Martin Harlow. Apparently, Dr. Harlow knew Phineas Gage before this accident takes place, mm. and he describes Gage as a perfectly healthy, strong, and active young man, 25 years of age, nervobilious temperament. Wow. Five feet, six inches in height, average weight, blah, 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 on it goes. Oh, he's little, though. <laughs> he is little. He's a short king. Um, so it should be noted that nervobilious, I had to look that up, denoted. Um, oh, yeah. I was just sitting here nodding like, mm-hmm, yep. <laughs> Phineas was nervobilious. Okay. So um, it denotes a combination of excitable and active mental powers with energy and strength of mind and body, making possible the endurance of great mental and physical labor. This is 19th century gobbledygook speech for he yeah. was a healthy brained individual. He seemed perfectly normal. Perfectly capable. And yeah. we come across a lot of really antiquated concepts about mental health and just the nature of the body and mind and how they operate. Right. And that's kind of why Phineas Gage's story is so garbled because mm. different doctors were using his case to uphold really antiquated ideas about what the brain functions were and how it all worked together, um, which is tantalizing. I can't wait to share that. I'm bit so excited. So we get to the incident at hand. Phineas Gage is 25 years old, September 13th, 1848. 
So he's working for the Rutland and Burlington Railroad in Cavendish, Vermont. So what they did in a lot of these New England towns and New York and all over the all over the country, all over the world, they have a series of cuts, what they call a deep cut or different kinds of cuts where kind of like on a highway where you're cutting through a rock pass or a little mountain or a hill mm-hmm. and you have to get through the rock. And how you do that is you do have a series of explosions that are timed and charged into the rock to create a pathway, in this case, for a railroad bed. Right. And this becomes Phineas Gage's career. He is known as a very competent foreman in blasting technology and is known to inspire his men to fall behind him and is a good leader and has a good head on his shoulders. And so <laughs> he's time, very sacrilegious. I'm going to make up. <laughs> he's, yeah, he's, words so, he's super bilious. Um, leader, leadershipist. <laughs> leader. Yes. Um, yeah. Jack Canfield esque. So, um, <laughs> so he's, Cutting through this rock. And so what he had to do was they would bore a hole into the rock and they would put gunpowder in the hole and they would take a fuse and put that fuse connecting to the gunpowder. I'm doing visual aids for description. For I was going to say doing your hand language. movements are excellent. On point. So uh, and then they would put sand on top of that, which is any inert substance because basically what it does is it puts some distance between you and the powder mm-hmm. and it's supposed to direct the blast into the rock and not outward. Right. So all these things are going on. And apparently Phineas Gage had a special tamping iron commissioned for his work. He was so into this business of blasting things that he had a local blacksmith make him this special custom tamping iron, which just sounds nuts. Yeah. So what it is, it's a long pole. It's described like a javelin and it has a flat edge and then like a really uh, sharp tapered edge, which is very important, ladies and gentlemen. (sighs) And apparently the tapered edge was rare. I don't know much about, I tried to look up other tamping irons over the time and see if there was of course, examples and tamping yeah. irons. Tamping irons, Pinterest. Where yeah, there's no tamping irons. No, okay? I'm gonna there's look just, them up. Yeah, go ahead. The, when you look up tamping iron, you just see pictures of Phineas Gage's skull. It's like I'm really sure. the only. It's like such an antiquated tool that we don't talk about it today at all, only because of this incident. Yeah, no, I see modern examples of a tamping iron. Like, yeah, but not no. Nothing yeah, it's at the not time. really widely held. Um, so. A terrible misfortune takes place. So the idea is that if you've ever seen a cannon that's loaded at a Civil War reenactment or a musket, usually there's something called a ramrod or Mm -hmm. a large rod that's used to push the charge into the gun. And then you light the fuse and the thing goes boom. The problem is if the gunpowder goes off prematurely, an explosion can happen prematurely. So at some point when Gage is doing this work, He's turning his head in front of the hole where the tamping iron is going down. And apparently he was opening his mouth to say something to someone behind him. And the tamping iron sparked the gunpowder. So this caused an immediate explosion. And the tamping iron went straight up and it went into his head. And so it entered beneath his left eye, somewhere in his left cheek. And it goes through the skull and out through the top. And apparently the tamping iron was found 80 feet away, like in the earth, just like like stuck in the earth, covered in blood and brain matter. Brains, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) So he was basically shot in the head by a a piece of metal. Can you imagine be wanting the guys standing there just like, ah. Uh, right. And it happened uh, so fast. <laughs> it happened like, so fast. Now what do we do? <laughs> right. And you think the guy's dead. And so the, the iron is three feet long, about about a meter long. It's a 
an inch and a quarter wide, and it weighs 13 pounds. 13 pounds? So, so you that, gotta think about the force of that explosion. Yes. That's terrifying. It is insane. And so the tapered edge allowed it to pierce his skull through, and, it, yeah. and it sort of created an opening that allowed it to pass all the way through. And it just, it just left his body immediately. There was no, it was not stuck there. It wasn't like he was, you know, left hanging uh, around with it, hanging a out. A long skinny bullet basically. Yes. And that apparently was influential in terms of it creating a sort of a wound that was, could be healed from as opposed yeah. to a projectile remaining in the skull. Right. Um, so Gage is thrown on his back. He apparently convulsed briefly, but retained consciousness which is incredible. no thank you <laughs> right again who wants to, who wants to be around this guy right night, night night i would like to be unconscious for this now if you can imagine there were two doctors uh edward h williams and dr harlow who i mentioned who treated uh gage the first was dr williams who found gage now can you imagine the scene that dr gage confronts so uh gage is sitting in a chair outside a hotel like on a porch and dr williams rolls up most likely in a stagecoach and he is greeted uh by a most ridiculous scene gage is just sitting there saying doctor here is business enough for you <laughs> he's joking talking, around talking giving him a soliloquy on what happened details just like chilling does he have and a napkin on his head or anything like, i would hope so <laughs> and he's like his brain is visibly pulsing outside <gasps> of the top of his head because there's a huge hole that yeah. was created where the tamping iron exited so he's got pulsating brain coming out of his like hair and he is swallowing blood because remember his mouth was open. So everything is just blown up here in the face. He's swallowing blood, vomiting blood. So um, glad I ate already. So <laughs> gross. Like it's so <laughs> unbelievable. So again, like if, if I'm Dr. Williams and I roll up to this guy, I'm like, yeah, I, I'm, I'm good. Like <laughs> do no harm. There's nothing I can do for you. Just bring the horses back around one more time. There's nothing I can do for you. Um, so this is like a war wound. This is something that is, like, yeah. just insane, insane industrial accident. Dr. Williams is, is stunned that Gage is speaking to him. Sitting yeah. up instead of just being in a ball on the ground convulsing like he exactly. initially was is, is wild. Still alive. So apparently there's like a funnel shaped hole in his head and there's, mm. you know, coagulating blood and all kinds of other things happening. And like I said, some, some elements of brain, Dr. Uh, Harlow, takes over on the scene relatively soon. He's the senior physician. Mm. And so Williams and Harlow work together, but Harlow is becomes the celebrity of this case. And so Harlow shaves the scalp around the wound, removes coagulated blood, actually removes pieces of his brain. Yeah, because I imagine it's a bit fragmented at this point. Yeah. There's got to be little pieces of skull also like stuck in there. Yes, yes. And so he's treating this, you know, this convexed out blast area and trying to sort of patch it back together. And right, so he removes his two pieces of detached bone and some other foreign bodies that somehow got in, maybe in transit. He's on the back of a stagecoach or, you know, a big like a flatbed. And so the, the wound was bandaged loosely with a very loose bandage, sort of just like with a little strap underneath the chin to hold it all on his head. And and a wet compress was applied. Um, and a oh, that'll do it. Yeah, it's just a basic... <laughs> a ba <laughs> all the while, uh, Phineas Gage's mind remains clear. But in his convalescence, it was a long convalescence. And this is when things begin to go sort of up and down. We don't really know if he's going to make it. Um, yeah. 
the convalescent was long. It was difficult. It was uneven. It was se several months. And right to the second day, Dr. Harlow says Gage lost his mind and became decidedly delirious. On the fourth day, he becomes rational. He knows his friends. And a week later, they think he's going to recover. But then about two weeks after, he's almost comatose. The family's called and they think he's going to die. So it's like up Jesus. and down. Up and down constantly. Um, so it was really touch and go with Phineas Gage. And by the time he gets to the two-week mark, uh, Harlow notices that he's not really responsive, not really alert and oriented, mm -hmm. and that he's only answering in monosyllables, like, uh-huh, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, just like grunts and words. And so Dr. Harlow performs a surgery on Gage to try to correct what is becoming a fungal infection Ooh. at the top of his head. <laughs> <laughs> Katie, Katie's I, not enjoying this. I was not given enough of a warning. <laughs> now today, a warning today's episode. <laughs> I didn't know there'd be fungus. Ooh, it's bad. I can't even I don't really ever seen like a photo in one of those like 10 weirdest injuries of all time, like BuzzFeed <laughs> lists. I didn't know it was this bad. I mean, I guess I probably should have assumed it was this bad. Right. Like this is a part of the story gets glossed over. It's that he got injured and then he was never the same. But the actual surgery and treatment of him was very tumultuous and oh my God. pretty incredible. So Harlow, I'm going to say, removes the fungus <laughs> from his head. As as one should. Yes, and sort of cauterizes the wound. And so there's pus and there's various things that we are discharged. We get it, Luke. Gross. <laughs> so what's important here is that Harlow leaves the wound able to drain. He doesn't try course, to seal yeah. up the wound. And apparently this was a big departure. So it's a um, huge deal, I was going to say. Harlow was trained um, at the Jefferson Medical College in Philadelphia, and there was a Dr. Pancoast there who was one of the leading surgeons of the United States in this early 19th century period. Yes. And apparently, Dr. Pancoast demonstrated various surgeries. I think that leads into something you're talking about next week in terms yes, of- Yes, and Jefferson University is a major, major player in that story. Excellent. <laughs> yeah. So Dr. Panko's surgeries were epic, and there was one surgery where, same thing, a gentleman had a wound in the skull, and Dr. Pankost patched up the wound very tightly, and there was a bacterial infection, and the patient died. And so there are people who say that Dr. Harlow learned from Dr. Pankost's error, and that lesson saved Gage's life. Isn't it amazing that this doctor, who was really well-educated and one of the better-educated surgeons in the area, just happened to be around the corner from Cavendish, Vermont, where this terrible accident occurred. Thank God. Jesus. So within that period, Gage's be Gage begins to improve. So within about a month, he's sitting up, he's walking around, he is resuming some sense of normal life. He likes working with the horses in the barn, feeding the cattle, working uh, the plow, the plow at the field, and he's able to do like a half day's work without, within six months or so. So this really helped. It did. It did. Okay. It, it led to his quick turnaround. I have some images to send you. I guess we can pause the uh, Okay. Okie dokie. I just got some photos from Luke. <laughs> they are something. <laughs> yes. There's a really famous photograph, a daguerreotype actually, of Phineas Gage. And the quotes from Dr. Harlow and others are just really too good to not include here. A quote I will, I will include is, disfigured, but still handsome. 
Agreed. That's exactly how I was just going to describe him. He like, is so he's handsome. A little hottie. Like if I move, <laughs> if I enlarge the photo and move it slightly to the right of my screen. Yes. You'd never pinch, know. Pinch and zoom uh, to the other side of the head. Um, so <laughs> you'd never so know. he parted yeah, so, his hair the right way to make sure it was correct. Hidden. <laughs> correct. So Gage and Doctor Harlow kind of lose touch after the initial reports by Harlow, mm. and apparently Harlow's initial reports were sort of very sensitive to the fact that he had a living patient. And so there are some that believe that before Gage died, Harlow didn't actually publish the extent of his findings in a public way, which is really shady, right? So yeah. the doctors remarked that he was he looked great. He was able to walk around. He had full motor control. And so depending on who you talk to, the observations of changes in Gage's behavior were localized to right after he was injured in those tumultuous few weeks mm -hmm. and towards his death about 12 years later when he suffered a series of epileptic seizures that, as we know, can influence things like mood, things like higher level functioning um, and cognitive ability. But could likely also be attributed to this horrible injury that he'd gotten, that it made him more susceptible. Sure, exactly. He definitely would not have had seizures had it not been for this injury. Um, definitely an, an externality of that. And so he yeah. lived, but he didn't live that long. So he lost sight in his left eye. He's a kid. I mean, right? He was like a baby, he's, 25. He's only like 25. Yeah, yeah, that's crazy. Yeah. And he had a large scar on his forehead. And so mm. a, a life cast of his skull reveals that the really the tectonic movements in his sort of skull and the cracks in it are really evident. Wow. And apparently the hole in his skull was always there. So you could see inside his head. They never ever did anything to patch it up? I mean, it was apparently something you could look into, a window into his mind if you were. <laughs> That's Sorry. There's another one. Okay. Like Stupid. the whole the whole expression like I need this like I need a hole in the head like <laughs> What's wrong with you? Just trepanning. Dad joking your way through this. Yeah, of course, of course. Uh, <laughs> so he had partial paralysis of the left side of his face, and apparently he lost one tooth. Like, all things considered, not a I bad mean, deal. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, you lived, but you didn't live that long, and it sounds no. like... Some of it's, it was pretty bad, so it's, it's not a good. It's not a. It's not a good deal. Um, so here's where it gets really interesting because this links us to some of our other pre themes. Of course, uh, Phineas Gage was presented to the Boston Society for Medical Improvement by yet another doctor who was trying to kind of leverage his career on the case of Phineas Gage, mm. uh, Doctor Henry Jacob Bigelow, and Bigelow presents him to the society in Boston, and then. Phineas Gage appeared apparently at Barnum's American Museum. Hell in, yeah, he did. Of in New York he would. City. Yeah. As a living Barnum hears about that shit, he pees his pants. He's so excited. <laughs> <laughs> yes, come Phineas, come to my museum. Um, and so he's a, a living museum exhibit. And records of his appearance of his appearance in other New England towns survive. Like he's at the Union Hall one week or the Lyceum the next week, and you can pay two cents. And now this is where it might be mythic. Apparently, for an extra fee or something, he would part the hair. I was going to say, did you get reveal. to look in the head? Mm -hmm. um, yeah. I so, figure I, I gotta say that should have been included with the price of admission. That's fucked up that you're going to charge extra. Why I mean, am I coming on. to see him if I'm not coming to see the hole? 
How do he's I just, not know? Otherwise, not, he's just a guy standing there telling me he has a hole in his head. How do I not know it's a paper mache patch on his eye? It's like the it's most his Barnum thing. Eye. It's the most Barnum thing I've ever heard. It's the most Barnum thing. <laughs> um, but he didn't like do it forever. He did it, but he that wasn't like his only thing. He wasn't just defined by that. Apparently, he gave the tamping iron to the Warren Anatomical Museum in Boston. But then after a year or so, he's like, can I actually have it back? Oh. And he carried the tamping iron with him everywhere he went. It was his constant companion. Whoa. Because apparently before the accident, he was already liking the tamping iron. Like he had it specially made. Like, like, like? <laughs> no. Oh, no. Oh, God, I can't. I just went, I just went somewhere really gross my mind. Me I too. can't. <laughs> I can't. I was like, wait, the story's already gone in directions I wasn't yeah. prepared for. <laughs> Only penetrated once. Um, <laughs> oh, no. Um, <laughs> so it's, again, there's so much myth. There's not a lot that we can say. There's a lot of competing. We just created another one. <laughs> we did. We just competed a sexual myth about Phineas Gage and his damping iron. Um, <laughs> so I don't know how this went down, but in 1852, Gage was invited to join a long-distance carriage driving concern in Chile. How do you end up down there? Apparently he was invited. Like, who the hell? He was recruited. Essentially, he was headhunted for this, for this, for this carriage driving gig halfway down in Tierra del Fuego. It's bizarre, and I've I didn't believe it when I first came across it, but there's multiple sources that back it up. So, in 1852, he went to Chile and okay. became a carriage driver. Well, all right. Yeah, and he. That's Why what couldn't he, did. he do that in America? I do not really know. So. He remains in Chile for a little bit, but then returns to for several years and then eventually ends up coming back to San Francisco. But what's important to note about his work in Chile is that apparently people say that it supports a theory of recovery, a social recovery, that because mm. he had a structured existence being a carriage driver, meaning that he would wake up early, he would tend to the horses, he would keep a schedule, he would greet passengers take their mm -hmm. luggage keep conversation with them apparently you've got a team of horses you've got to really be careful with those big turns yeah. you've got these mountain passes and these uneven roads where so the idea there's planning there's foresight there's reaction so they're saying R routines are very good for the brain exactly yeah and so there are some who say that this has bearing in terms of uh how veterans and um uh, people who served in combat were given some similar kinds of uh, social rehabilitation techniques. Think about occupational therapy and the mm -hmm. world of mental health. All of this sort of makes sense. It's common um, treatment with any sort of PTSD too, is to like get in routines and get right. in, you know, habits and make and, lists. Yep. Yeah. You're absolutely right. Yeah. Um, so despite all this, Gage is suffering from other bouts of illness, and he ends up returning to America, and he comes to San Francisco in 1860, and he is suffering from these horrible seizures. This poor and man. apparently he died while having a seizure on May 21st, oh, 1860. God. So what a it's, life. It's a really tough life. Totally divergent pathway set along for him in 18... Um, Whatever the fuck year it was. <laughs> in 1848. 
whatever. <laughs> oh, it's hard. It's hard. It's hard. It's hard. Okay. So oh many. God. We've we've been in the 1800s for so long. I can't. We, we can't expect anyone to remember what year <laughs> we're talking about. <laughs> Dates are right. No, of course not. 1841. <laughs> um. So what's interesting is that. Gage is buried in San Francisco in a cemetery that no longer exists. What? Yeah. So it was called. Um, fuck, so he's haunting someone somewhere because his bones are <laughs> unsettled. Get this. The bones story is interesting. So Dr. Harlow loses track of Gage. And years later, he's like, hmm, I wonder if that fella's still alive. And, eight, and in 1866, he's like, oh, he died. Oh. And he asks the family if he can have the skull. <laughs> I'm so sorry for your loss. Real quick, were you going to use his skull? <laughs> and you get the sense, like, apparently Gage's mother was, like, around for all of these things. Like, Gage's mother was with him in Vermont, and then she's going to California to pick this him up. And then woman. she's with him when he with him when he dies. This poor woman. She's like, take the fucking head. I don't care. All right? Whoa. So his skull <laughs> she is, apparently from, is from the Bronx. <laughs> She is Susie Essman. Take the fucking head, David. <laughs> Give me the fucking head. <laughs> so Gage's skull is removed from his skeleton, and that and the tamping iron are sent to Dr. Harlow. So Gage's body remains in the cemetery in San Francisco. Eventually, that whole cemetery complex was, was removed. Every body that was there was removed to a different cemetery, which is now in Colma, California, just outside of San Francisco. Okay. So it's not like he was desecrated. Um, Everyone was temporarily disinterred and then... Correct. So they were all... Yeah, okay. this area of, this, of the city was probably being developed. And so they just disinterred everyone, as you said, yeah. and moved them. Okay. Well, that's better than building, you know, condos. Oh, God. No, God. We, we can't have that. So you can visit his grave in, in Colma in California. Wow. Um, yeah. So with... Gage's death, the floodgates are now open for a revisionist history on what happened to him. So what's really fascinating to me is it all came down to what these doctors were believing in. Sure. Because mm -hmm. as we've mentioned a lot and very recently, this is this weird time period where I think you said it, Luke, where you're like, you have one foot in antiquity mm. and one foot in modernity. Mm -hmm. And so you're still believing in things like humors and phrenology and now spiritualism. Yes. But also there's like real concrete proof that there is no such thing as humors, how disease spreads. We're learning more about all the time. It's just, this is such a, a perfect story also that kind of seems to represent that yeah. story that we've been telling lately. And it's a story that is evolving after the patient is no longer with us. So we think Crazy. about patient patient privacy today is very sacred. But, you know, and there was some medical propriety here in the time when Gage was alive. So was in, there? In 1868, Harlow writes this massive treatise on Gage's treatment and care. And he says that um, his intellectual faculties and his animal propensities are at conflict with each other. So again, he's definitely believing in these kinds of mm. local sort of areas of the brain and different kinds of instincts. And he says that he is fitful, irreverent, indulging in times in the grossest profanity, which he would, had never done before. Okay, um, so far, he just sounds fun, but go on. Yeah. <laughs> Manifesting little deference for his fellows. He's impatient. He has no restraint. Um, um, he is obstinate. He's capricious. He's always vacillating. He's great terms that no one uses really anymore. He's my toddler. <laughs> <laughs> 
it says he's a child in his exactly. intellectual capacity and manifestations. Yeah, he sounds like a toddler. But he has the animal passions of a strong man. I think Harlow, I think Ooh. Harlow had an LGBTQ Excuse stream. Excuse okay? me. That's yeah. why he wanted that tamping iron back. <laughs> <laughs> Um, at the same time, he also says that Phineas was accustomed to entertaining his nephews and nieces with fabulous stories and that he loved animals and had this fondness for the little creatures and that the fondness for animals was only exceeded by the attachment to his tamping iron. Oh, <laughs> this poor man. It's a really tragic thing. And Harlow's kind of got this penchant for the traumatic. He says, I dressed him. God healed him. So he's also a believer. In yeah. the Almighty, of course. And so Harlow is really sort of making his career off of this case. And there are other doctors who have conflicting ideas about what was really going on here. So you have these two doctors. We talked about Bigelow before and Harlow. It's kind of difficult to understand who's who without a visual reference. And so Dr. Bigelow was anti-localization of, of the brain. What was Me, his full name again? Uh, Jacob Bigelow. Jacob Bigelow. Okay. Yes. So the two of them had different accounts of what happened and different reports on the of the effect on injuries mental health. And they supported hypotheses at the time about the relationship between the body and the mind. What's interesting is that Harlow, the main doctor who treated him, who cared for him, who who operated on him, was a believer in phrenology. <sighs> this brilliant surgeon also really? believes that bumps on your head can tell us about your brain and where what you are all about. However, so even though phrenology is wrong, the gist of it made sense in this argument because they're saying that part of his frontal lobe, they didn't call it that, part of his sure. gray matter had been destroyed, which changed his personality. Now, depending on what phrenology head you're looking at, Maybe that's amicability. Maybe that's generosity. Sure. Higher level thinking, right? You're just you're just touching mm -hmm. on different parts of the skull. It's also interesting that this guy was interested in phrenology when he had seen inside the brain. Yeah, and it's he's still reifying that concept. Whereas Bigelow had been taught and had believed that damage to the cerebral hemispheres had no intellectual effect, and so he's going. To say that there's no there's no impact on Gage's personality, whereas Harlow is saying there was a change, and maybe it was a little dramatic, more dramatic than I, than it actually was, because that supports my ideas that are rooted right. in phrenology. So this poor man's dead memory is sort of being pulled yeah. back and forth between I mean, these two ideas. Did anyone in his life like support either perspective? Like his, like his mother, his family members who did know him at, before and after. Did anybody give credence to either version? I get the sense that the Gage family is very much still around and protect the memory of their ancestor. We There were also later reports that came out from his time in Chile, which supported that idea of his social recovery. Okay. So what was happening here was you have two doctors who were referring to a very specific period of time right after the injury. Right. And they didn't really follow up with observations that kept in line with the 12 years following. Yeah, it's not like they could really give a full account of the outcomes. 
Exactly. Yeah. This is They true. only know how it started and how it ended. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And so, you know, as the decades roll on and as our understanding of the relationship between the brain and our ability to communicate changes, things like the social recovery hypothesis come into play. People are able to dive a little more deeper into accounts of visitors and people who encountered Gage in Chile to get a sense of his mastery and his uh, mental acuity that was needed to perform these tasks. Crazy. And there are some people who have said that if even if Phineas Gage bounced back from an injury like that, that's a powerful message of hope for other people suffering from traumatic brain injuries and these unspeakable issues. Right. But yeah, some of the exaggerations in the years following were really out of control. Um, that he was a psychopath, that he mistreated a wife and child, even though he was never married. I was say, when did he have time to do that? <laughs> right. They say he was inappropriately sexually uh, promiscuous, that he had impaired sexuality. He had a lack of forethought. He was a capacity to embarrass himself. He paraded in self-misery. He was always parading himself in front of these dime museums. He was into gambling. He had no money. He was bankrupt. He was aggressive. He was violent. So the stories go on and on. Lying, yeah. bullying, acting like an idiot, a lout, a layabout, all these crazy terms. And none of these behaviors are mentioned by anyone who had met Gage or even his family. No really? One. Yeah. So it's all just kicked around in the echo chamber of these uh, medical professionals who are using the story to prove or disprove whatever current theory they had about the mind. That's so unethical. It is. It is terrible. Yeah. Um, and that's part of the critique today is that, you know, it's about the purity of the story and what does it really mean? It's, it's, he's more of a curious footnote that is exaggerated to prove a point and we're missing the fullness of the story, which is he was the beneficiary of pretty darn good surgical science of the time. He really was. And he shows us about elasticity of the brain, the fact that major elements of the brain can be taken from your head and the brain has an ability to repair itself and to reconnect those tissues. To some um, extent. Yeah, exactly. You may have some memory issues. You may have some acuity issues. You may have a delay. You may have a number of, you know, sort of minor disabilities or cognitive difference, but the mind is in a remarkably uh, elastic thing. Yeah. Um, and this is really one of the big takeaways from Gage's story. It is often theorized that- He's got a big, like, I'm going to tell you some shit now. Look on his face that you guys can't see. <laughs> it is often theorized that Gage's story was a direct predecessor to the modern lobotomies of the 20th century. I was going to ask you- if you'd read anything like that. Which that doesn't make sense. Is the first thing that comes to my mind is it yes. sounds exactly like a lobotomy. Yes. In, in the eye area. Yes. Right? right. The ice pick, which goes behind in the nose, into the into the brain, to the frontal lobe. Um, yeah. And so there's no link or evidence that suggests that a doctor was inspired by Phineas Gage's case and that we know that trepanning or trepanation boring into the skull with a device mm -hmm. uh, has been going on <laughs> way too long, way too in, long in medical science, going back to like the middle ages. Yeah. Um, so in terms of the, of the medical professionals out there, there's little evidence to back that up. But further, I want to tell you a little bit more about Phineas Gage and memory. Mm. Um, so there is a memorial plaque to Phineas Gage and the incident in Cavendish, Vermont, right oh, in the nice. area where the deep cut was in the train track. Uh, there's a life cast of Phineas Gage's skull at the Warren Anatomical Museum, and the tamping iron and the skull 
are all there. Oh, cool. Okay, so that's that's awesome that they're that he's together with his with his iron. with his bay. Yes. Yeah, that's what he would have wanted. And uh, I think in COVID, the Warren uh, Anatomical Museum, not to be confused with the Warren. I just Cult keep Museum. thinking of the occult museum when you said Warren. I was like, how the fuck did it end up? Well, <laughs> those bastards! It is haunted. They um, get everything. So I think in COVID, they closed the museum. It's like open by appointment, one of those. So the picture I sent you, actually, can you believe this? That photograph of Phineas Gage was only identified in like 2009. Are you serious? Which I could not believe because I I think I had like a misplaced memory of this because I was like, oh, that picture's been around. It's 160 years old. But yeah, when I was when I was taking uh, psychology in high school, there was no picture of Phineas Gage, only a model of his skull and the bar going through it. Right. Yeah. Which yeah, yeah. And so apparently he is described as well-dressed, confident, even proud, holding his iron. And there's inscriptions on the daguerreotype which describe Phineas Gage, who survived this incident in 1848, holding his iron. Apparently, for years, the owners of the daguerreotype thought it was an injured whaler with his harpoon. <gasps> oh my god <laughs> i could see why they thought that yes it it's very suggestive of that if you don't know if you're just trying to think of what the context might be like he's just a sailor right but even when i zoom in on the tamping iron it's clear that it's not a wooden harpoon it's it's doesn't even in this black right. and white medium i can tell it's not wood but yeah, why would, what, why would this even be in their minds of course that's what they would think instead <sighs> that's so amazing yeah what's even more interesting to me and this is something i didn't realize is that daguerreotypes are laterally developed so that's why it appears as if his right eye in that the was going to be my next question <laughs> yeah you're good you're sharp um, yeah so that was, I think, what led to another level of confusion where for most of us, we don't necessarily know the attributions of how daguerreotypes are processed, but apparently most daguerreotypes of the period would have been developed laterally so that any images appears opposite to what you would expect. Yeah. So it appears as his other eye. You're looking at a mirror. Yeah. Blind. Exactly. Okay. Which is really interesting. Oh. Um, yeah. Pretty wild, huh? Yeah. Uh, so there's uh, a few mannequins of gauge out there. Or I should say sculptures. These are um, rough. <laughs> <laughs> I'm looking at them and they're rough. I am trying to figure out where this bearded gauge is. There's like one of him looks like a, he looks like an old prospector from like really? the Black Hills. And I like that he also like has his hand up like, well, what are you going to do? <laughs> it yeah, happens. And, <laughs> and like the left eyeball is strategically turned askew. Like Whoa. it's really realistic, folks. But he looks very matter of fact about the like, oh, well. <laughs> and it's like as if it just got shot in his head and he it's still there. So the, the tamping mm-hmm. iron is just sticking out of his head like the fake arrow you shoot through your head on Halloween. Yeah. Um, it looks like he did it to himself. It's very, we- <laughs> it's very poorly constructed <laughs> yes and there's another one that's a little more creepy i think by the way um, I, is there an eye chart behind him also <laughs> i am trying to figure out where that photo where came from i lives? found it on pinterest i don't know where it was so it's, it looks like some kind of roadside museum definitely um, but there's another one a sculpture the other image i believe i sent you and this is in saint albans museum which is in saint albans vermont and it's sculptor, sculptor mark print created this sculpture. And it's, again, it's the moment when G- Gage is being impaled. So it's he's got a horrible expression on and this iron just askew through his head. And so apparently sculptor Mark Print donated this sculpture to the museum upon his death. So there thanks. are some... Thanks. 
That was so necessary. Lovely. Um, great. Now I have to stick this in our lobby for all time. Um, <laughs> it's really, really bad. It's 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 crazy. It's like Seward Johnson, you know, like like that kind yes. of co like colorful, realistic yes. sculptures that are that can, are kind of off putting. And of course, just like Cropsey Land folks, there is a United Kingdom hardcore metal band known as Phineas Gage. Fuck yeah! <laughs> also, scream metal. Yes, it's from Perfect. what I can. I haven't actually got any clips. I might feed one into the social. That social would be great. <laughs> <laughs> so this is by no means the most definitive or uh, brainiest uh, discussion of Phineas Gage, uh, <laughs> as it is a shorter discussion. Um, but it is such an interesting story and one that is so much more complex than than i thought going into sort of preparing for this that's really crazy because i then of course i'm also thinking about you know the the brain is still a part of the body that we do not understand there's mm. we we know more than we did certainly in 1848 <laughs> you, got this happened. you got it <laughs> yeah. yay good for me um we certainly know more but we still don't understand like dreams. We don't understand why certain individuals get dementia entirely. What makes some families more prone to Alzheimer's? How is that carried from generation to generation? You know, mm. the whole controversy with football players and just finally, CTE. yeah, mm. finally coming to understand the impacts of CTE. It sounds a lot like the way he was being described. That's what it, a lot of unfortunately these these men who are sacrificing their lives essentially for this game mm -hmm. um are putting themselves in so much potential risk of losing parts of their brain <laughs> um and Phineas Gage I mean let's let's assume that those accounts were correct I, I find them very believable based on what we've seen in recent years with CTE you know? Yes, I think you're absolutely right. And that was something that Harlow said was that Gage was no longer Gage. That was yeah. his big quote, you know, that he was a different person altogether. Yeah. And that's, I think, been exaggerated. But in the case of CTE, we've seen, unfortunately, with the burden of modern film and video and, yeah. and, and remembrances, how influential this repeated trauma can be on people's ability to basically discern right and wrong. And so we see some of that psychopathic sort yeah. of you know, Intense, trail. Um, inability to decipher right and wrong. And also in even the milder cases, sudden onsets of incredible rage that yes. did not formerly exist. Yes. Yes. Lack of and inhibition. Lack of, lack yeah, of inhibition. Like, yeah. Yeah. Antisocial, just anti-society mm -hmm. um, and, uh, you know, people who would swear or be impulsive who never were like that. Um, yeah. And so, you know, the story of Gage, as it is somehow exaggerated sometimes, actually dovetails with the unfortunate truth of CTE and some of these other terrible yeah. repeated traumas. Obviously, I'm going to sit somewhere in the middle because we don't know what's true or not, <laughs> but it's believable to me for sure. Yes. And also that no one is one thing all the time. No. No. Right. So if you have if you have really, you know, drastic mood swings that are part of this, sure, you could be talking to your little nieces and nephews one day and you could be a friggin maniac the next day, you know, in so terms scary. of. So I think there's I think you're right. And there's a the truth that lies in the middle yeah. um, because there's not a lot that we know. What's really curious to me is that there was no autopsy. So weird. 
Like right. maybe his family was just done. Maybe they. Were I don't just... think they were wanted to know anything more. Yeah, and you can't. And I mean, you can't really blame them, especially if he had really turned totally, like unbearable to be around. Maybe mm-hmm. they just they didn't want answers. They just wanted it to be done. Who knows? Yeah, terrible. It's difficult. Yeah. yeah, but God, that would have been so useful <laughs> if that guy's yeah. brain was still around. Yeah, yeah. Harlow oh. really bemoaned that. Um, I'll bet he did. Yeah. But his skull is an amazing teaching tool. And, you know, I'd like to think there's still some educational dividend coming out of the Gage case. Um, if if nothing else, in its, in its time, it was instructive. And maybe today it's a little more instructive of the changing ethics and the context of the medical professionals who were dealing with him and what they were mm. using Gage to prop up or to yeah. support, you know, again, that's totally unethical and not scientific. No. <laughs> <laughs> it's bad science. And we and Harlow believed in pseudoscience. He believed in phrenology, which was complete, you know, cockamamie stuff. Bunko. Total, total Bunko City. Yeah. You know, not far off from P.T. Barnum, you know, in terms of just like making stuff up. Oh, this is, this is really great. Terrible terrible thing that happened to this man but yeah incredibly interesting and informative and so perfect right in the middle of our deep dive into this weird (laughs) anatomical journey we're on right now that's right that's right anatomical odyssey you got it you got it Thank you for listening to this episode of the Morbid Museum podcast. Please remember to rate and subscribe to the Morbid Museum wherever you listen to podcasts. And please leave us a review on Apple and other apps. We'd love to hear from you. Please reach out to us on email at themorbidmuseum at gmail.com. Follow us on TikTok and Instagram at the Morbid Museum. Until next time, we'll see you for another gallery talk inside the Morbid Museum. Bye. Bye-bye.